1: Hello and welcome to the Heredity Podcast with me, Dr James Bergen. Now, beyond your annual dose of hay fever, you may not think about plant sex that much, if ever. But it really is a fascinating, complicated area of biology. And one of the rarest and most complicated plant mating systems is called tristyly. Now, you may not have heard of tristyly before. To be honest, I'm not sure I had. But it's a system that's fascinated some of the biggest minds in biology, as you'll soon hear as we discuss the recent Heredity paper architectural constraints, male fertility variation, and biased morph ratios in tristylist populations. So what exactly is tristyly? Why should we care about its evolution and persistence? And what famous scientists have I alluded to? Well, let's find out. First up, can you please just uh, introduce yourselves?
0: I am Nicolai Demidacuion. I am a Brazilian biologist, uh, deeply interested in evolutionary biology. Currently, I'm a postdoc researcher at Universidad Nacional del Comahue in San Carlos de Bariloche, Argentina, where I'm affiliated with the group of Ecologia de la Publicización, led by Marcelo Weizen.
2: And I'm um, Spencer Barrett. I'm an emeritus university professor at the University of Toronto, uh, where I've been for most of my career, although I'm originally from the UK. Um, my lab largely focuses on the plant reproductive systems, their ecology and evolution and genetics. Uh, And certainly this study fits into that general framework. Perfect. Well, thank you both for taking the time to talk to us. This
1: paper is focused on flower tristyly, but I think a lot of people, including me, don't really know that much about plants. So can we just sort of start off by finding out what
2: tristyly means? Okay, tristyly is a type of plant mating system. So if you take the flowering plants, uh, one first has to appreciate most of them are hermaphrodite that is they have both male and female sex organs and therefore a key issue in plant mating is how much outcrossing crossing between plants and how much selfing self-fertilization occurs so tristyle is just a mechanism that has evolved in about six flowering plant families so it's it's not particularly common but it's a way of promoting outcrossing in flowering plants and it's a rather complicated way because it involves three different hermaphroditic plants in the population. And you only get matings between the types that differ in the length of their styles, that's the female sex organ, and their anthers, that's the uh, male sex organ. And this polymorphism uh, is maintained in populations by what is called frequency dependent selection. So we expect an equilibrium of one-to-one-to-one to one to one of these mating types. So In a sense, it's a bit like sex in humans, where you have two mating types. What's unusual here is that there are three mating types, and those three mating types are all hermaphrodites, but they can only mate with another mating type in the population.
1: Oh, perfect. That sounds incredibly complex. Is there some kind of advantage to having tristyly
2: Aha, well, that's a hard one because, um, of course, if it's only in six flowering plant families, it's quite rare. There are about 300 flowering plant families. So it basically can only evolve under very specific conditions. Uh, and the advantage is that this system promotes outbreeding, and the benefits of outbreeding, of course, are more genetically vigorous offspring. But a reasonable question would be, well, why this complicated system? And that, I think, remains a mystery. I mean, there are certain morphological characteristics that plants must have in order to evolve tristylee, but um, you know, there's still a lot of unresolved questions with regards to why particular lineages have evolved tristylee and others have evolved other particular outbreeding mechanisms. There is a nice quote which I'll give you, and that is that Charles Darwin described tristylee as a most complex marriage arrangement. He, in fact, wrote that there was no more complex sexual system in any plant or animal group. That is as good a reason as any to
1: try and tackle it in your research. And I guess what would be kind of interesting is that, I mean, you mentioned there that it's not particularly common. It has got this sort of fascinating ecology. Darwin was interested in it. What is the sort of real importance in studying tristyle?
2: Well, it's a really, it's a model system for studying natural selection because we know the form of selection operating on it, and that's often not the case with many traits, many characteristics. So we know that frequency-dependent selection operates, so that's a good situation. We also know the inheritance and the genetic mechanism responsible for it, which means we can actually use it and model it to see the trajectories. Of these mating types in populations. As I say, we have a nice basic hypothesis about what we expect, and that is with mating between forms, that's called disassortative mating, we expect an equilibrium of one to one to one in a population, which, by the way, was sort of demonstrated mathematically by the famous geneticist Ronald Fisher. He was fascinated by Trisile and he did a lot of mathematical calculations and showed that. With the inheritance pattern of tristyle, which is basically two genes, each with two alleles, and what is known as epistasis between the two loci that control tristyle, we expect this one-to-one-to-one ratios. Of course, there could be many, many factors that would disturb that pattern of mating. And so that's what's exciting about going out into real natural populations and saying, well, is this Darwin-Fisher prediction? Of this one-to-one-to-one ratio realized. Uh, I mean you're following
1: in some pretty big footsteps there so I guess this is a really good time to get into exactly what you did. So for this study you were focusing on a group of plants called uh, Pontadaria which are sort of delightfully known as the prickle weeds. So maybe you could just tell us a bit about these plants in general and why it is that you chose to study them.
2: Let me start on the sort of the beginnings of this and then I'll hand over to Nikolai because I mean what's special about our study is that the geographical location was quite different from earlier work that my lab had done so pickerel weeds are very common in north america and they've been studied quite a bit there but we know virtually nothing about the species of this genus pontederia in the neotropics what we had discovered from studying this plant in eastern north america is that there was an indication that this one-to-one-to-one ratio, the Fisherian ratio, if you like, wasn't being realized in natural populations. So an interesting opportunity arose when Nikolai and I started to collaborate uh, in Brazil, in the Pantanal, was to look at a species that occurred there, which actually had the polymorphism and I'll hand over to Nikolai to tell you a little bit about what we did with this neotropical species, Pontideria parviflora.
0: Uh, yeah, uh, this Pontederia parviflora is like um, uh, perennial aquatic freshwater uh, that occurs in marshlands and ponds, and it can grow up to two meters height and form clumps. And differently, it bears inflorescences with white flowers that persist for just one day. And in the region of Pantanal, we have the, it is easy to study there because Pontedire part of flora can flower all year round uh, in permanent ponds, but the flowering peak is from October to March, which is the wet season. So our objectives were first, uh, determine if the species is in these tylos. So if we can recognize the photomorphs easily in the field, we could also do the large-scale photomorph sampling and investigate patterns of photomorph ratios and check if the population are under the theoretical equilibrium of one by one by one, which is called isopathy. And deviations from this can be caused by different evolutionary processes. So uh, this species in the system that appear to be a very good tool for testing evolutionary hypotheses.
1: No, perfect. I mean, I I have uh, seen some pictures of these, and they do look like beautiful flowers, but they also look very, very small. So I wonder if you could just explain what it was that you actually did, like the kind of research you conducted to try and address these objectives.
0: Um, There are a few characteristics that a species has to have to fit into the heterosteinal syndrome. Uh, The most important is reciprocal hercogamy. So the species must have a reciprocal disposition of the sex organs in order to promote the dissociative mating and cross-pollination, which means that it has equivalent height of anthers and styles. So to investigate this, we measured these tiny flowers uh, of several individuals in five populations in the Pantanal. Uh, and besides this, we measured the perianth size in such flowers, which is expected to do not vary between fluoromorphs. The second step is checking for ancillary traits that generally accompany the heterostyle. And maybe the most prominent trait is the pollen size and pollen production. So for pollen size, it is expected a direct relation with anther height. In uh, the other hand, for pollen production, is the opposite. So for studying these, we did also harvest flower buds from the same five populations used to flower measurements and measured and counted pollen grains at the lab. We also counted the total number of flowers produced per flower inflorescence uh, as seed production as a proxy of female fitness. And lastly, we did a large survey of flutamore frequencies in 71 populations distributed in Pantanal. Um, I think that this was the most challenging and fascinating part of the job. For these, we had to enter in various ponds of different size, shapes, and depths, sometimes over the chest high. And just to point, now is very hot, with temperature regularly going beyond 4 degrees Celsius. There are tons of mosquitoes, and it's also very common to have caymans and capybaras in our way, and sometimes anacondas nearby. Um, there are piranhas and stingrays in the water, so it's advisable using rubber waders. So, can you imagine using a wigger in a hot pond under 40 degrees Celsius? Yes, it is very exhausting.
1: Wow, oh, that's fantastic. I mean, it sounds like amazing fieldwork. Like, it sounds incredibly difficult what it was you were doing, but it does sound as though it's, it's a proper adventurous style bit of research. And I'm kind of curious about what it was you were actually finding here.
0: Okay, uh, I would say that the, the first key find is that the studied populations are clearly tri-styles. Uh We found strong evidence of reciprocal archeology and flower size was similar between morphs following the expectation, and as flower number and seed production. And regarding the pollen size, it also followed the expectation of direct size relation with anther height, being smaller in short anthers and increasing in size with anther height, and the inverse relation with pollen production. Nevertheless, one interesting find is that the mid anthers of the long morph. Produced significantly less pollen than the same answer level, but from the short morph. So, the general conclusion for this section is that the species show all aspects for tristyl species, except for the fact that we found differential pollen production for the short and long morphs, as reported for other Ponteduria species. Um, for our fluoromorph survey, we counted more than 10,000 flowers. In seventy-one populations. <laughs> yeah. And the survey pointed a photomorph frequency consistently deviated from the Fisherian expectation of one by one by one. Um, the short morph was about 1.8 times more frequent than the long morph. Um, we also tested if such relation could be associated with population size, as the smaller populations are more likely to show deviations of the isoplastic equilibrium because of historical conditions in stochastic forces, but for our surprise, we found no evidence that the bias in fluoromorph ratio was related to population size. Okay, so here we have a clear tristitis species with no evidence of female fertility variation between morphs, but differential male fertility and also significant bias on fluoromorph, being the short morph more frequent. Thus, we have two aspects that are not expected by the theory. So, with this in mind, we used dynamic models to explore theoretical scenarios on the fluoromorphic frequency under differential and equal male fertility. So, the basic idea of the model is to investigate in how many generations the population would reach fluoromorphic stability and if it would tend to equality of one by one by one. So, what we found is that with similar pollen production as expected, uh, morph ratios reached the predicted equilibrium of one by one by one. But in contrast, when the observed difference in pollen production at mid level anthers was included in the model, the equilibrium ratio was not significantly different from the fluoromorph ratio we observed in the field, which is amazing. Um, and we found small differences in morph ratios uh, between deterministic and stochastic simulations with differential male fertility, but the pattern obtained was always the same. The short morph was most frequent, and the long morph was least frequent in populations.
1: Oh, fantastic. And do you think that Darwin and Fisher would be happy with the ratios that you're funding?
2: That's hard to say. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I bet they'd be impressed with the sheer number of flowers that you measured, though.
2: Certainly <laughs> Darwin. But um,
1: I guess here at Heredity, we are interested in the sort of very broad messages. Um, So for people who are like me, who are not particularly aware of plants, what do you think is the sort of key message for
2: people listening? I think probably one of the key messages is that um, there has been a tendency for us when we think about plant mating to just focus on the female side of the hermaphrodite plant, and I'll, I'll sort of explain what I mean by that. The standard approach to measuring plant mating systems is to collect seed from a particular maternal parent, and then using genetic markers to actually estimate how much outcrossing is occurring and how much selfing. I think what our work sort of points to is that while that is, of course, one important dimension of plant mating, Another important dimension is on the male side of this functioning hermaphrodite. In other words, the pollen production side and the male fertility side. The reason we haven't measured that uh, as thoroughly, of course, is because it's very difficult to do that. You have to do paternity analysis. And to be clear, we have not measured that in Pontederia populations, but very few people have sort of connected pollen production to male reproductive success. And I think our work points in that direction. And, of course, it leads to the question, why is there this difference in pollen production at the mid-level anthers of these long and short-styled moths? And we make a case in our paper that this is a, essentially an inevitable consequence of the floral development that occurs in this particular family of, of monocotyledonous plants. And without going into all the gore details, I'll simply say that we have evidence from other studies that these anther levels may develop differently, particularly with respect to the timing of meiosis, which then leads to the differences in pollen production. And that is a sort of epic phenomenon of the peculiar floral organization. It's a constraint that's built into how tristyle has evolved in this particular family because there are, of course, are these other tristylus families and they don't have this difference in pollen production. Oh, fantastic.
1: I have to admit, I think a lot of people probably don't think in terms of male and femaleness with plants in general when it comes to their mating, but obviously, heredity, there is a focus on this and it is a really fascinating paper. So it'd be great if one of you could just remind us of the title of your paper.
0: Okay, I'll do that architectural constraints, male fertility variation, and biot photomorph ratios in tristylous populations.
1: Thanks to Nicolay and Spencer for taking the time to talk us through this research. Plants really do get overlooked quite often, but this is a fascinating system and it only gets more so the more you read. It's really easy to see why Darwin and Fisher got so hooked. So why not join them and give this paper a read? As always, you can find it on the Redity website. That's nature.com forward slash HDY. But for now, that's us. In the next episode, we'll be returning to our new series exploring the motivations and research of the people behind the journal, our Heredity editors. To make sure you don't miss out, you can subscribe to the Heredity podcast on all good podcast platforms. And you can follow us on Twitter, at Heredity Journal. If you want to get in touch with me directly, drop me an email at hereditypodcast.gen at gmail.com. I'm James Bergen. Tune in next time.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better?